The scripture reading this morning will be Matthew 25, 14 through 18. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one, one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Stories are the language of the soul. They have a way of touching our hearts like few other influences can. This is why Jesus used storytelling so often to illustrate deeper truths. He knew the power of a story to cut through to the heart. These now famous stories are known as parables. They were Jesus' way to communicate important kingdom principles in a form that we could remember, in a way that would touch us. Although the details of these stories were fictional, the kingdom principles are not. They are true. They are eternal. Today, these stories continue to remind us who God is, what he calls us to be a part of, and how much he loves us. As we continue in this series on Jesus' parables, some of the stories Jesus told, we're going to be in Matthew 25 today. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, Matthew chapter 25. The phrase, wait until your father gets home. Is that good news or bad news? It kind of depends, doesn't it? It depends. If you're a child and you do something you aren't supposed to do and you get in trouble and your mom or your sibling says, you wait until your father gets home, it's probably bad news, right? By the way, my mom never, I can't ever remember her saying that phrase. She was more of a don't put off until later what you can take care of right now kind of parent. And she would take care of it right then and there. (laughs) But it could be good news, right? If, if your dad is in your life, active part of your life, and maybe he's gone on a trip and, and your mom says, hey, wait until your dad gets home. You know, maybe he's coming back this weekend. You're like looking forward to it. And, and maybe if you have one of those traditions in your family where when mom or dad are away, they, they bring you a little gift as a child when, when they get back. I mean, what parent hasn't bought an overpriced trinket in an airport gift shop, right, for their child? I've, I've been guilty of that. Or maybe if, if your dad is, is away in the military and he's stationed somewhere and he's been there for a long time and he's finally coming back and wait till your father gets home and you look forward to that as a child. I, those videos, those videos get me every time, you know, of the mom or the dad who is in the military and they're stationed somewhere and then they surprise their families when they come back. Oh my goodness, those get me every time. And so it could be good news. It could be great news. It kind of depends. It depends on the circumstances. It depends on your perspective. Whether or not there is dread or delight as you wait. Now, what if it's not a physical parent? What if it is your heavenly father? What if we're talking about the return of our Lord Jesus as we wait for his return because he said, I'm coming back. We just sang a song that declares our faith that he is coming back, that there's something beyond this life. As we wait for Jesus' return, do you wait with dread or with delight? My guess is it probably depends. 
It probably depends. In today's parable, we see both. We see both of these characteristics as Jesus contrasts two different mindsets, two different approaches as we wait on Jesus' return. Now, we're going to look at the version of this parable in Matthew 25. It's also in Luke's gospel, a little bit different story. I mean, Jesus probably told this story more than once and maybe changed the details here and there. But in Matthew's gospel, it's nestled between two other parables in chapter 25, and both of these parables bookend the parable of the talents, as we call it. And all of these parables have us looking to the future. Jesus wants his listeners in that day, and I think us today, to always be mindful of what is to come that this isn't all there is, that Jesus is returning. And so we live and we work with an eye on heaven, knowing that he is coming back. Right before this, in chapter 24 of Matthew, he's told those people that your temple is going to be destroyed. He, he makes them know that that's going to happen and that end times are coming, that the page is turning and these are now the last days in which we find ourselves still today. Again, all of that was to point people to the future, that something is happening, something is coming. How do we view what is happening and what is coming? How do we view the future? How do we prepare for it? What should our mindset be? Should we dread it or should we take delight? And so Jesus tells this story, Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, it... It's important for us to define what the it is there. And the context says it is the kingdom of God, life in the kingdom of God, as contrasted with life in this world. This is the nature. Jesus is unleashing the, unleashing the kingdom of God in his life, in his teachings, ultimately in his death and resurrection. And so he says it, the kingdom, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went out once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received a one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. A couple of terms in that text we need to look at very quickly. Bags of gold. We always know this as talent, right? In fact, we call it the parable of the talent, of the talents, or I guess you could say the parable of the bags of gold. It just sounds odd, doesn't it? That it's interpreted or translated that way, bags of gold. By the way, we get our meaning for talent today as a gift or an ability that someone has. We get it from this parable. The meaning of that word for us today is derived from this parable. But that word literally means a measurement, a weight measurement, a unit of weight. And it was usually about 75 pounds. And so you could have a talent of gold, you could have a talent of silver, you could have a talent of copper. So it was a weight measurement. It later became a coinage measurement. So the value could fluctuate depending on what content what we were talking about, what material we were talking about. And it could have very well have been bags of gold. Whatever it was, it was worth a lot of money. So this was quite a lot of money that this master left with his servants. The other phrase in there I think is so interesting. How did he 
give these bags of gold, these talents, this money, to his servants? What guideline did he use? Well, the text says he gave to them according to their ability. Not all of them were given the same amount, were they? Is that still true today? Now, we know, and the the New Testament tells us, in places like Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians chapter 4, that we all have different gifts. But we're talking not just about those gifts and talents as we use the word today, but wouldn't you also say we all have different resources? We have different opportunities. We have different relationships. We're all in different places. We're all in different places on our faith journey. We're all different. And so the question isn't, why don't I have what he has? Or why don't we get what they seem to enjoy? Or the question's not comparing what I have with someone else. The question is, how can I use what I have? How can I use what God has blessed me with? Whatever that is, opportunities, resources, my job, my family, my material blessings, my energy, my intellect, my giftedness. How can I use what God has given me for the sake of the kingdom of God? To advance the borders of the kingdom, to make much of Jesus to have an impact in this world for the cause of Christ? That is the question, and I think that is what is at the heart of this parable. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, for everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded from. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. You see, with ability comes responsibility. With blessing comes responsibility. With resources comes responsibility. And as we begin to look at this parable and its application for us today, one of the first things we need to do is take inventory of what we have. What has God given us? What has God given you? I mean, just start thinking about all the things that God has given you. What do you thank God for in prayer? What do you need to thank God for that you maybe don't normally think about as a blessing from God? It starts with taking inventory, and then the question is, how can it be used for the glory of God. So in the story, the wealthy man gives one servant five talents, one servant two talents, and one servant one talent, or bag of gold. What happens while he's gone on his trip? Back in the text, verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's or your lord's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, You entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. If you know the term ROI, you know it's remarkable in this story. The return on investment. What is it for these five talent and two talent servants? It's incredible. It's a hundred percent increase. And if you can find a CD or an investment or something like that that, that guarantees a hundred percent, we would line up for it, wouldn't we? 
Somehow these guys were able to double their investments. And when the boss returns, he commends them and he invites them into his happiness, to share in his happiness. And then we see the contrast from delight to dread. What happened with the one talent guy? What did he do with his talent, his bag of gold? And what happened when his master, his boss, returned? Verse 24. <clears throat> then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you not, have not scattered seed. So I was afraid. <clears throat> and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here it is. Here's what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked lazy servant so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed well then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I return I would have received it back with interest so take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags for whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them and, thrown, and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow, story takes a turn, doesn't it? If this is your first time to see that story, maybe you weren't expecting that. Strong language. But you see the contrast between the servants. We have the five-talent and the two-talent servant. What do they do? And they're industrious, they're active, they're busy, they're working. They're anticipating the return of their master. Maybe they're delighting in his return. We have good news for you. The one talent servant, what is he doing? He's afraid, he's fearful, he's timid, he's passive. And he buries the talent. His mindset is, my master is callous and he's cruel. And what happened? He was met with what he expected. Look at the words used to describe him in this story. Wicked, lazy, worthless. Strong words. Dread versus delight. Two different perspectives, two different approaches, two different outcomes. So what does all this mean for us? We read very quickly through the story. What does it mean for us? I've, I think one of our <clears throat> temptations is to read this story and interpret it and apply it in a way that says, well, I have to work harder to earn my way to heaven. It's very clear what this says. This parable is not promoting a works-based salvation. The New Testament is clear. All throughout the New Testament, the message is clear. We are saved by nothing we do. We are saved by the grace, the mercy of God through the blood of Christ, our faith in Jesus for who he is, what we just commemorated a few moments ago. Most of us know that. We know that in our brains. We read that in the scriptures. But there's something inside us. There's that little voice inside us. It's almost like a default setting. We just sort of default back to it. Well, I gotta do more to show God I'm worthy. I gotta do more to earn my way to heaven. And once we get this mindset, once we get this default setting, it is so difficult to reprogram it. It is so difficult to embrace the grace of God. This parable is not saying if you work hard enough, God will reward you with a home in heaven. But if you don't work hard enough, he will not. That is not consistent with the message of the New Testament. 
One example that I think says it so clearly is Romans chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. And I use the New Living Translation because it's so easy to understand, especially in the context of what we're talking about here. When people work, their wages are not a gift. That makes sense. You work, you get a paycheck. But something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their work, but because of their faith in God who forgives sins, who forgives sinners. That's us. We are saved because God is loving and forgiving. So much of our society is merit-based. Think about our education system, our work and careers and vocations. Think about just life in general. It's merit-based. But we're not talking about our world. We're talking about the kingdom of God. Remember the it? It's kingdom living. Life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Not just in heaven someday, but right here. Keep in mind what the first two servants are commended for. What does the master say? Well done, good and productive servant. Well done, good and qualified servant. Well done, good and successful servant. Is that what he says? No. What does he say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Good and faithful servant. We so often focus on outcomes. The outcomes of the first two servants, the results were the fruit of their faithfulness, which is what is commended in Jesus' story. Our job as Christians, our job as followers of Christ is not to be successful. Our job is not even to convert people. That's God's work. That's God's business. Our job is what? To be faithful. That's our job, to be faithful. And so this parable is about being faithful in light of Jesus's return. Being faithful knowing that Jesus is coming back. And Jesus has a lot to say about what faithfulness looks like. He demonstrates it, but he also shows us and tells us what it means to be faithful. And so in the few minutes that we have left, I want to tell you just two things faithfulness is from this parable, and maybe two things faithfulness is not from our context in this parable. Being faithful to God in light of his return. First of all, what faithfulness is not. Faithfulness is not apathy. The master called the one-talent servant lazy. Why? Because he was passive, because he was inactive, he was unresponsive, he was indifferent. Jesus wanted these listeners, his first century followers, to know that something was coming, that he was turning the page, that this was the last days they were entering into, and to look to the future. And while they look to the future, they don't just sit passively. We have to wait a lot, don't we? I mean, it's just the nature of our society. You wait in drive-through lines. You wait in waiting rooms at the doctor's office. You wait on the phone. We know how to wait. Most people don't like waiting. So what do we do when we have to wait? We find something to do. We don't just want to sit there and wait. And yet sometimes, as followers of Jesus, we we are baptized into Christ, we begin a life in Christ, and then we just sort of say, okay, I'm just going to sit in this pew, literally sit in this pew, and I'm going to wait on Jesus to return. 
And Jesus wants his listeners to know that there is work to do. There is work to be done. And church, right now, in our day, in our time, there is work to be done. For too long, too many of us have been apathetic, have been indifferent, have been passive. The church has recently gone through some challenging times, haven't we? Families, society, economies, businesses, institutions, schools, universities, we've all gone through some challenging times recently over the past three years or so. And as many things that were difficult and maybe still are difficult about some of those challenging times, in some way, as we know God will do, he can use those things. And I think one of the ways God has used some of the challenging times we've been through recently is he has used those things to to stir things up, to shake things up, to wake us up. You see, as, as our culture, as our culture that is increasingly hostile toward Christianity, toward the beliefs that we see in God's word, as our culture increasingly becomes more combative towards Christianity, it's going to squeeze in on us. And you know one of the things that's going to happen? Things like apathy and indifference, they're going to get squeezed out. No longer will it be possible, as though it ever were possible, to be a nominal Christian, to be a Christian by name only, to just be indifferent about things. Because as pressure increases those nominal Christians will be gone you see that's the nature of hardship and challenges and opposition and persecution whatever form that may take the fires either refine our faith or they expose it where does apathy come from so many times it comes from the second thing that I think this parable tells us that faithfulness is not Faithfulness is not fear. The servant said, I was afraid. I was afraid, so I went out and I hid your gold in the ground. That's what fear does. Fear paralyzes faith. Fear causes us to play it safe, to cut our losses, to bunker down, to default to what is most acceptable, least disruptive. Fear causes us to be highly suspicious It causes us to bury our talents. Playing it safe has been the MO of too many people, too many churches, too many Christians for too long. Open your Bibles. When do you ever see women and men of faith in the scriptures play it safe? Almost never. These are the people who are on the front lines, in the trenches, putting themselves in harm's way. These are the people taking incredible risks, These are the men and women that God is using to advance his kingdom no matter what happens to them. They're leaving their comfort zones. They're speaking with boldness. They're allowing the spirit to lead them into the future, whatever that future may be. Did you notice in the story, in the parable, did you notice that the one-talent man actually ends up getting the very thing that he was most afraid of. 
His perception of his master was callous and cruel. And what happens when he returns? His master is seemingly cruel to him. You're wicked, you're lazy, you're worthless. You see, that's the nature of fear. Fear causes us so often to get the very result that we're trying to avoid. When we act in fear, so often we end up getting the very thing we're trying to avoid. Faithfulness is not apathy, it's not fear. Well, what is it? I think from this parable, we see a couple of things that it is. First of all, it is active. The two-talent, the five-talent servant, they went to work. They had a goal, they had an objective, they had a plan, evidently, and they used what they had been given. They weren't passive, they weren't lazy, they weren't indifferent. Listen, if you've been sitting on the sidelines, it's time to get in the game. Faithfulness is active. Not active in the sense that if I do enough, remember, we already said this, if I do enough, God will send me to heaven. But active in the sense that God wants us to be about his business here. God has work for us to do here. Works that we are created to do. Ephesians 2.10. Parents, if you have children and you're not getting them connected with our children's ministry or our youth ministry, why not? How can you expect your kids to grow up loving Jesus without a community of faith to help them, to nurture that faith, without times in God's word, learning, letting the spirit of God transform them? Parents, if you've been keeping your kids on the sideline, it's time to get them in the game, whatever that means. Well, I got to, you know, schedules and it's going to cause, I know. Yeah, it's going to, but is it not worth it? Or maybe you, maybe you've been on the sideline. It's time to get in the game. Faithfulness is active. Volunteer for a ministry, teach a class. Volunteer for Friends Speak, what a great program. Start a discovery Bible study with someone. We have resources and ministries and opportunities, so many. You have the same thing. You have resources. You have opportunities. You have energy and giftedness. You have time. You have money. You have talent. And what you have is different than what I have or what the people around you have. And we can all find ways for those things to be used for the work of the kingdom. You see, that's really what it comes down to. After you take inventory, you say, okay, God has given me all these things. Now, am I using these things, these blessings, these resources, these opportunities, for my own personal gain or for his glory? Which is it? Even your job. Do you view your job as, well, I just something I do, I gotta make a paycheck and put food on the table, and that's great. But is there a way to view your job as more than a job, as a, as a spiritual context, leveraging whatever opportunities you have for the Lord? Paul says in Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as though you were working for the Lord, not for people. What if our mindset was, this belongs to God, this job belongs to God, I'm working for the Lord. This house, this resource, this physical blessing, this talent, this treasure, this belongs to God. How can I consecrate it for his service? How can I set it apart to serve him? 
The second thing I think we see is that faithfulness is risk-taking. Risk-taking. The one-talent guy played it safe. He buried his talent. The other guys did something. And whatever they did, and we don't know exactly what they did, but it must have involved some level of risk to get that big of a reward, to get that big of a return on their investment. You see, faithfulness is willing to take risks which is so counter to the way most of us are wired. We are wired for safety. The other day the TV was on and I wasn't really watching it, but I was, you know how you kind of subconsciously hear what's happening and two commercials came on back to back. One was for a company called Simply Safe, which does home alarm systems. The very next commercial was for something called Safe Light and they come out and do windshields for your cars. Maybe you've heard the jingle, Safe Light Repairs, Safe Light replaces there you go see I don't even it's listening but not well but it dawned on me in that moment two commercials back to back both using the word safe why because we like that word that is a that is a top value for us we like safety we like security faithfulness is willing to step out and take a risk Erwin McManus said this most of us in the church are actually living in the past He said, the present terrifies us. The future, overwhelming. I find that to be true sometimes. We are terrified about what is happening in our world today. And we can't even think about the future. We think about the world our kids and our grandkids will grow up in, and it just, it terrifies us. So what do we do? We bunker down. We back off. We default to what is safe. We don't stretch ourselves We aren't willing to give up familiarity or comfort for what might benefit the church or the kingdom or others. When is the last time you took a risk or stepped out in uncertainty because you felt like God was leading you there? When is the last time you intentionally did something difficult rather than doing the easy thing for the sake of Christ? You see, we have our values and we have our phrases And there are some phrases that we need to reconsider in the church. Phrases like, we've never done that before. Now, I can tell you, if we've never done it before, there's there's maybe a good reason, or there is definitely a good reason why something has been done before. But to say that something can't be done because it's never been done, is that risk-taking faithfulness? Phrases like, we're going to get some complaints. Phrases like, What will people say? If through spiritual discernment and prayer and Bible study and conversation, you feel a leading by the Spirit of God, we feel a leading by the Spirit of God to step out in faith, we need to do it. We need to wrap up. Just I think of the example collectively of of what our shepherds decided a few years ago about Sunday night for the master. It's a great example, very tangible example. After COVID, you know, we were apart for so long, our shepherds said, we need to get together. And not just to be together in the same room, we need discipleship to happen. Where does discipleship happen? It happens in conversation, it happens across a dinner table, it happens in Bible study, it happens in smaller groups. It happens over activities and shared experiences. It happens when we challenge each other and listen to each other. 
How can we get that? Well, let's try Sunday night for the master. Now, there was a whole lot more that went into that, as you can imagine. But you know, our shepherds had to wrestle with, well, wait, we've never done that before. What will people say? What will people think? But you know, our shepherds kept coming back to, through prayer, through study, through conversation, we feel led by God in this direction. It's going to benefit the people here. We are about being disciples who make disciples. So we're gonna do that. You see, stepping out in faith and taking risk, there's always this fear that what if it fails? What if it, what if it just flops? Whatever it is, not, not just a ministry or not just an opportunity collectively, but in our own lives. What if we quit this job and take a new job? What if we move? What if we start a new school? Or what if we take the kids out of school? Or, you know, all those decisions, what if it flops? And we're so worried about outcomes, remember? And maybe our assessment of what is successful and not successful isn't the same as God's. Because remember, our job is not to get the outcomes. What is our job? To be faithful. To be faithful. On an individual basis, I think of one more example. Last Sunday, I said we weren't here. We, we got to be uh, at another congregation, and we saw some friends that we haven't seen in years and years. Caught up with them. They're, they're about our age, super young, uh, they're like us in their mid-50s they have two grown daughters biological daughters they're out on their own and they have they're married and they some of them have uh, one of them has grandkids for for this couple and then they about 10 or 12 years ago they adopted two boys from China and now those boys have recently graduated from college and one's gone on to school for grad school and one is working and and so they're empty nest our friends are empty nest you know, they've raised four kids and now they get to be grandparents and, and they're, they're loving life. And when we saw them, they said, hey, did you hear? We're gonna have a child. We're like, wait, what? <laughs> You're gonna have a child? Yep, we decided to adopt another kid, this one from Thailand. Wow. They decided two and a half years ago, but the paperwork and the process has been delayed for two and a half years. This boy is 14 years old now. So this couple in their mid-50s, empty nest, ready to enjoy life, is adopting a 14-year-old from Thailand who doesn't speak a word of English. Why would they do that? I asked them that. Why would you do that? <laughs> They're like, why wouldn't we do that? We've been through this before. We have the experience. We have this house. We have this opportunity. God is God has put this in our lap. He has led us through this opportunity, through this whole thing, this, this whole process. Of course we're, we're going to do it. It's gonna cost them. You can't imagine how expensive those processes are. Some of you know firsthand. It's gonna cost them heartache and energy. And they're willing to do it. Why? Because they view everything they have, everything they've been given, as something that can be leveraged for the kingdom of God, to make a difference in people's lives, to draw them closer to Christ. Well done, good and faithful servants. What about you? What do you have from God? How are you using it? Can it be invested in the kingdom of God, the work of the kingdom? If you aren't a follower of Jesus, it's time to make that decision. 
that decision doesn't save you. God saves you by his grace. But do you remember what we read through faith? You have to believe. You have to act on that belief. And part of that action is confessing. I believe Jesus is who he says he was and I want to be buried with Jesus in baptism and raised to live this new life clothed in Christ, Paul says, clothed with Christ. A new creation with a new purpose and a new hope and a new home. Make that decision today. If we can encourage you, let us do that. If we can pray for you, we want to do that. We want to be a caring community of faith. In just a minute, a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a little room right behind me. You can exit out any of these doors. Go there. They'll pray with you. They'll encourage you. They'll be happy to receive you. Or we will do that up front for you here as a church family. If there's something we can do this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Let's stand.